0: Welcome to this week's World Wild Podcast, sponsored by Forager Limited, and I'm your host, Miles Irving. Um, This week's conversation is held outdoors, um, so I thought I'd do the introduction outdoors as well. It seems a lovely thing to do in the spring, and you can catch the sounds of the birds. Um, I hope the sound of the traffic isn't too loud, but we are not um, quite in the middle of nowhere here. Um, So, this week's this week's conversation is the second ethnobotanist in a row and uh, you might think that's by design but it's actually um, just a curious pattern that seems to be emerging. A few weeks ago we had two herbalists back-to-back, there was no plan or intention to that. Um, it, just, um, it was just the way it happened and, and, and in fact one of them just happened to be in Kent and, and we decided to do the, the, uh, the conversation because she was here. Um, And in this case, our guest this week, Wukash Wuchai, um, just happened to be in Kent because there was a gathering of the Association of Foragers in the the Southeastern region and um, he came along to that. So that gives me a good opportunity to mention. The Association of Foragers is um, basically a a group of people that work as foragers for a living, either teaching or um, selling forage goods and um, if you go to the Association of Foragers website it's a great resource because there are people all over the UK and in various different parts of the world that offer teaching courses or other services Um, so it's well worth going on the Association of Foragers website if you just google Association of Foragers it'll come up and you can look at that network and find somebody near you. Um, Wukash being one of them he's in Poland so if you're in Poland you can um, Potentially hook up with him there. Um, he does do a few courses as well as working at the university, and uh, he'll explain more about that once we, once we get stuck in. Um, but I think it's nice to be perhaps going into a bit more depth, having touched on this subject of ethnobotany last week, um, and see that it's a really important area that people are making such a study of traditional par- plant use, with a view to. I guess shining a light on it potentially I mean that's the um, that's the uh, purpose of all of this kind of work is to document what people do and the relationship between people and plants so that more people can access that information and I think some really interesting things come out of the conversation that you're about to hear uh, about how that um, connection can be woven between you know the traditional custodians of knowledge and people in a more modern context who can actually draw on that and, um, and see it as an example and a, and, a, and a kind of pattern of how they themselves can start to engage with their surroundings. Um, so um, without further ado I'm going to introduce Wukash to this week's Worldwide Podcast. Mm-hmm. Welcome this week's guest. He's a Polish ethnobotanist and forager. His name is Łukasz Łuczaj and he is Associate Professor of Ethnobotany at the University of Zdzierzów in Poland. So, hello, hello. Łukasz.
1: Hello, hello. We are in the Kentish countryside among blue both.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an unusual venue. We're normally sitting inside a house, but this is far more appropriate, I think. Yes. Um, no actually I will confess i'm normally sitting in an attic with a with a with a screen doing this stuff on skype, so it's very nice to be doing it in person yes. um, in a wood with the birds in the background so um I'm aware we're going to have to just choose our subjects because there's so many different things we we could talk about but um perhaps you could start by just introducing the work you do um,
1: uh, i' an I'm a food ethnobotanist. botanist okay. I document traditional uses of uh, food, of wild food actually, that's my main interest. Uh, but I look at it uh, both geographically, look at different countries, and also look at in the past. So I okay. look at the changing patterns of use of wild food in, in my country, in Poland, or or in other countries, but mainly in Poland, because I have the most data for Poland. That's really
0: interesting. So, so in terms of historical mm. data, that's um, that's a big resource
1: that you have Um. it's it's a big resource Uh, you know you never know because maybe you also have similar maybe not so big but similar resources in in Britain but you haven't discovered them yet because uh, I I went through various archives in Poland and um, put it together there were people knew that there were different kind of questionnaires and studies and some of them were published but actually when you put them together when you actually compare them you could see the changes and also you could uh, see the value of it but we we do have um a lot of documentation uh which was done at the end of the 19th century and um until the, the mid 20th century it was started by uh you know people wanting to preserve folklore right. and just looking at local farmers as this idyllic view, like, oh, they, they have this knowledge and they, they live close to nature. We want to record it before they forget it. it exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff was done by Polish landowners, which knew Latin names of plants. <laughs> so if, if you have 19th century publications about some folklore of some county, you usually have Latin names. And uh, even more, some of the landowners also collected uh, herbarium specimens. So we have valuable documentation. So you can check that they they got. Yeah, now these territories belong to Belarus, Poland, and Ukraine because uh, the territory of the former Polish kingdom is larger than in the nineteenth century. Poland was didn't exist as a country, but the landowners, you know, were spread over these countries and mm. could document, mm. document the knowledge, um, and later in the twentieth century. Uh, there were also studies trying to capture these these, uh, these memories of the past, of famines. Mm. Like in other countries of Europe, there were some famines and people were starving from time to time. Every 20-30 years, there was some major lack of food. Right, because they harvested child. Yeah, usually it was associated either with drought or more often with wet weather and uh, or with very late frost, mm. which destroyed like potatoes or destroyed um, uh, young um, cereals and um, actually of course uh, people in northern Europe they don't use so many wild vegetables so in Poland people neither you know they use probably a similar amount of wild vegetables as in Britain Mm. Uh, but we managed to document it yeah yeah and but, but Polish people use a lot of mushrooms so this is another branch of knowledge which is really thriving and, and, you know, remembered.
0: And that's more current, is it? Would you say that the, the, the use of mushrooms is something that's been passed on to a greater extent than the, than the plant? Uh, the
1: use of mushrooms is, uh, is probably similar as it always was, although people tend to forget some minor species because they don't need to look look for food to to fill their stomachs so they would just go, f- go for saps for chanterelles for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for some you know field mushrooms uh parasol mushrooms and they wouldn't really care about these like bluets and mm. smaller stuff
0: well it's funny you mentioned parasol mushrooms because I've, I've got a, a funny story about when uh we uh spent some time in romania and we went for a long walk with a local tour guide who had quite a strong knowledge of the uh, local use of fungi species and we had quite a controversy because i found a parasol mushroom and showed it to him and said this is a really good one but his reaction was no it isn't you can't eat that i said on what grounds are you saying you can't eat that he said because the local peasants don't eat it so we had i was quite outraged that, that, that he, he was so adamant, but at the same time I could understand that this was out of respect for the local peasant knowledge, as far as he was concerned, if the local peasants didn't eat it, you couldn't eat it but what happened then was we, we, uh, we came across a, a shepherd and I said, well go and ask him go and ask him whether you can eat it or not trying to settle this controversy we took the mushroom over and he came back and I said, well what did he say he said you can eat it the guy said you can eat it, but he only knows that because there's some Polish guys come through here putting pylons through and they shared the knowledge with the local shepherd. So now that shepherd says you can eat it. So basically it was a
1: yeah. piece missing from the from the local yes. knowledge, yes. but a
0: Polish guy had, uh, had made that good for them.
1: The local knowledge is often very heterogeneous, so you would have uh, one piece of knowledge which is... Practiced in one village then in another, they say it's all bollocks. And okay. and, um, and also with parasol mushrooms, I think in the beginning of 20th century, I would say less than a third of the territory of Poland would use them as food. Right, and then the the, the use increased um, because of uh, the pictorial guides, and okay. people learned. People had extra source to to confirm, because. Uh, I think this is mainly of the fear of poisoning with uh, Lepiota, with the smaller mushroom which looks like parasol mushroom right. which is toxic. And is related, uh,
0: they, are, they are closely related. Yeah, it looks
1: very similar yeah. but it's much smaller but people confused it. And it is, it is a cumulative knowledge that maybe better not touch it because maybe someone yeah. died yeah. some time yeah. ago. And um, so there are some mushrooms which are increasing. For example, another is puffball, which uh, people wouldn't collect before, but now they see it in pictorial guides that you can eat it, and they eat it. And I have a PhD student. He did the documentation of a region of Poland, of Mazovia, around Warsaw, and he documented the use of about 90 edible species by the local, by the by the in the region, but only a couple of people mentioned puffballs. And when he asked the the, 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 the folk name. The guy said it's called pavball. Yeah, but phonetically I'm saying Puffball. And, uh, and he said, why do you call it pavball? And he said because I worked in a golf course in England and they they used to eat it in England. Okay. So I brought this. So even there is some mycological knowledge brought from England to Poland. So well, yeah, this knowledge exchange. <laughs> this knowledge circulates. Yeah. yeah? And and uh, we we all test it and forget it and reinvent it and learn it. And it's been always like this, like, for example, in Poland we had this fashion for making cornflower lemonade. Cornflower petals, beautiful blue petals, Mm. and you can ferment it into really tasty lemonade. And this was very, very trendy between the 1930s and 1960s, Mm. (laughs) and suddenly it collapsed. Partly because of the decline of uh, weeds and the use of herbicides, and partly because people stopped bothering making it. And then in the 1980s, we had a fascination with dandelion. This was the first wave of the fascination with wild foods, when everyone was making dandelion honey and dandelion preserves, mm. because they could recognize it, it was something familiar. The second wave was wild garlic. Actually, it's funny, in, in Poland we don't have a tradition of using wild garlic. Amazing. People would pass it all their life and would never try it. And. Uh, and this changed. Now we have a craze of using wild garlic, but in, some, in neighboring countries they use it. In Ukraine they use it, and in What's the Austria they use it. Because
0: even in times <laughs> of when when people didn't have enough to eat, they would not have eaten the wild garlic. Uh,
1: because people use, didn't use most of wild vegetables. Hmm. Uh, already, there's a book called "Folk Culture of Slavs," uh, big monographs of uh, Slavic folklore, and the author Moszynski wrote that he is amazed that Poles. And Western Ukrainians use so few wild vegetables. Mm. And he attributed it to the fact that Slavs were the pioneers of growing cereals in Eastern Europe. And they had, um, you know, the land wasn't so sparsely, so, so densely inhabited. They had enough meat and cereals. And the land is quite, you know, it's like England, it's quite humid. So you don't have drought. You have a lot of nettles. You have a lot of uh, sorrel, a lot of ground elder, so it was enough to know three, four species, okay. like goosefoot as well, and just harvest it. You didn't have to learn more. And people learned more plants in the Mediterranean because it was so dry and um, more barren, and they had to search for new species just to okay. fill the basket. They had a definite need in to England them or, them. or Poland, you go to the forest, you fill your basket with nettles. you don't bother with learning plants. Yeah, It's enough to know a few species. and. Um, so there were these, there were these, cra- these, these trends and crazes, and it, I'm sure there'll be more.
0: So the wild garlic trend is something fairly, fairly recent. Then. The last ten, ten years, 10-15 years. Yeah. Ten, yeah, 15 yeah.
1: years. <laughs> but it's really strong now. People really search for it, and they, you know, watch films about it, and try to plant it, and uh, you know, people get excited about it, and buy it in shops, in preserves, in yogurts, and. And uh wow. and another thing which is increasing is the birch sap. Again, birch sap is very common in Ukraine and Belarus, just across the border. But Poles always wanted to be like more modern, so they abandoned these traditions. So but now they are coming back. They are trying to learn again how to how to process it and preserve it. Okay. And, yeah. It's a big thing in, in uh,
0: Latvia and Lithuania, isn't it? The, the, the whole out? the yeah.
1: whole Eastern Europe, northeastern Europe, mm. it's it's strong. Mm. It's strong there. We we
0: um, found out about this tradition around fermenting the birds in in Lithuania,
1: which is pretty interesting. And, um, yeah, they they do it, and they often do it with like rye bread. They put rye bread okay. rind okay. at the bottom. Okay. They they would put, uh, yes, and also any remnants from winter, like dried fruits and what was left, they would put it at the bottom and just ferment it. Hmm. uh, But harvesting uh, birch sap is easier in Eastern Europe than in England, because the onset of spring is sharper and there is a shorter period of flow of sap, but it's sweeter, Mm. I think it's sweeter, and it's kind of more aggressive than the flow. That's a why shorter that's winter, why but they're all producing more. We, we have a longer winter but we have a shorter summer. A okay. shorter spring. Yeah. So in spring it kind of, you know, in, in Britain sometimes you can start flowing at the end of January or February and then it kind of flows and flows and flows until the end of April. And in Poland it's usually a few weeks shorter. So the trees produce it I think the the, the actual pressure mm. in the tree is stronger. Root pressure, yeah. And the more east to go, the stronger it is. Yeah, I mean, definitely varies here, the, the sweetness,
0: you can you can have like 1% or 2% sugar.
1: That's but but it's there. just my theory, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. I'm not tested. Hmm. But our university is testing their SAP and uh, there are a couple of people doing a lot of analysis, like differences in uh, mineral salt content and pesticide content oh, it's so all published that's a bit unnerving
0: pesticide content. yes
1: actually wow uh, the the pesticides go into the sap from the soil so if you have so if you have trees growing by fields with pesticides the pesticides do go into bear sap. well that's very interesting you should say that i recently they do go into it
0: i recently did an event at a school for the uh <laughs> the catering staff they wanted to learn about foraging. And we had two options. One was to go onto the farm belonging to the school or go onto the school grounds. But I went to talk to the groundsman and I said, uh, could you tell me where you kind of use any herbicides and that because we don't want to um, be picking there. He said, oh, I use them everywhere. Yeah. And, and there were some birch trees. And I did think, I wonder if, if this is an issue or not. But in the end, I thought, it probably is. I'm going to leave it. But, but for a moment, I was contemplating drilling a hole in this birch tree. But, but they're using pesticides around the bottom of these trees. So uh, also, the uh,
1: nitrogen can go right. into the sap. Right. If you have high nitrogen sites, it you can it shows up in not in all the samples, but in some samples. Okay. So you yeah. definitely want, you don't want to be tapping sap and, unless it's in a you need nice, clean sites. Yeah. You need clean clean cleanish sites. Yeah. So uh, so this was my original research, but actually. I started doing this documentation because I moved to the countryside. I wanted to be a hunter-gatherer. It started from the collapse of my career. Oh, okay. I, I was finishing my PhD and I thought it was all completely hopeless what I did. I was doing plant ecology, you know, meadow, meadow biodiversity and forest biodiversity, really interesting stuff. I learned plants and then I didn't want to be the part of the of the academic path and I dropped out I bought a piece of land and for for actually for a prize for scientific work. So, the prize brought me to to abandoning science, and I wasn't a scientist for eight years. I was hardly using writing even, maybe mm-hmm. writing tax forms, but and um, and I started living in with local people, and they were difficult local people. they were, at first, I thought, oh well, they are just drunks, you know, stupid drunks, but. Actually, when I uh, learned about them more, they had a lot of skills and they were telling me interesting things. Mm. So I got fascinated, you know, about their survival strategies. I could see this whole ecosystem where even this vodka was a part of this, you know, ecosystem. And the, 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 all the things they knew and they used them. Uh, so I learned a few tricks from there. I learned about some traditions that they were lost. Mm. And, and then I started teaching in a local college and they wanted me to teach ethnography and um, I, um, I started searching these maps of distribution of various traditions in Poland and that's how I started looking for it, mm. for these archives. Uh, and one of the, the two most interesting archives, one is from 1883, which was published in 60 newspapers, a uh, professor of botany advertised this questionnaire, 70 questions. And he got a few hundred answers from all over Poland, people writing what the the farmers in their area use, often with Latin names or herbarium specimens. And then in 1948, after Second World War, there was another project, which also brought a few hundred uh, questionnaires from all over Poland with herbarium specimens. And in 1964 to 1969, they did a, a grid of places, 330 places, wow. every 30 kilometers. There was a moderately backward large village, that's how, how they called it, where they asked people what they eat and what they use and how they, they bake bread, etc. Uh, but once I had this knowledge about from my own experience because I wanted to be hunter-gatherer, so I, I was mainly oriented towards learning how to obtain calories, taking digging out various roots, you know, bulbs and. Uh, catching lizards and grasshoppers and fish. And, um, and then I had this knowledge what people used. It was overlapping. Hmm. So I had this Native American knowledge overlapping with this famine food from the local area. And, and then I, I dreamt of doing a transect, of going all the way from Central Europe to Japan and studying various communities on the way anyway. and looking at different ecosystems And uh, so I I had this idea that I would go to some region and do like about 50 interviews in one region and set up a list of plants they use and then go to another place another place. So I feel like a pilgrim. I pilgrim from country Hmm. to country and I ask people the same questions, yeah? Because you can have two, uh, two ways of doing ethnographic research. You can ask different questions in the same area. You can study food plants, medicinal plants, craft plants, Superstitions in one area, or you can ask the same question, but change the area hmm. yeah so I, I, I chose to change the area a lot and um, I did Poland I did um, I did Croatia, very uh, many places in Croatia, Bosnia Herzegovina uh, also did research in Romania, Georgia, and parts of China Wow. And I want to do at some point Japan and Korea as well.
0: That's the mission bit.
1: What I'm uh, and some, oth- some other countries. Uh, but uh, what uh, also fascinates me is how people incorporate these dishes into uh, these plants into local dishes. So we can have the same plant, but use them um, in, a, in a variety of ways, which mm. is also very interesting. Uh, <coughs> So some of these countries are very interesting and they have really rich uses of plants, I would say richer now than Poland had in the nineteenth century.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So for some reason those those traditions have managed to Yeah, it is sustain. usually
1: associated with high mountains. High okay. mountains usually bring relic traditions, but not always, but even in the Alps, there are a lot of relic traditions in rich countries like Italy or Switzerland or Austria hidden somewhere in the in the highest valleys of the Alps. So usually high mountains would bring this this more knowledge, more diversity of knowledge. I looked
0: around for someone who might know the names of the fields. And you think that you know beauty in the winter and the spring. It ain't what you think, cause I know Most fascinating things that I've learned from talking to you over the years is is the story of borscht, which uh, it's that's almost you're you're talking about including wild plants into tradition traditional dishes, but that's a traditional dish based on wild plants, which has now become known for, for the, almost like the,
1: a the name borscht actually comes it's from Polish borscht and in Russian borscht. Borsch, I think, um, which um, uh, is the name of a plant. Yeah. Horaclium spondylion, hogweed. Yeah. This is borscht, yeah? And then the name barszcz uh, was transferred to beetroot soup. Mm. But originally it was the, the the hogweed soup, which was slightly fermented. It was uh, fermented for a couple of days, just chopped leaves and a little bit of salt and water put on, on it and it just gets sour. And then you can... And then you boil it, and um, was serve with meat or with eggs. Mm. We have a record of of the hogweed soup being the main dish served for Easter for the professors of the Aguilonian University in the 19th century, <laughs> with boiled eggs, fantastic, like Sora style. Yeah. And then, uh, then uh, the introduction of borage and beetroot from Southern Europe into Polish cuisine. Uh, there was we had a king who married an Italian princess and she brought Italian vegetables with her and we had we you know people started growing broccoli and cauliflowers and beetroots and and, um, and then slowly slowly you know beetroots became better than hogweed and hogweed was the, the food of the poor of the savages and slowly forgotten in the present territory of Poland we actually managed to found the last, uh, the place where the last uh, original borst was made. It was made in 1950 by a lady who, uh, I, who is from some village in southwestern Poland where we know the name of the lady and she used to make it in a jar and put it on the window. Hmm. And we are, we are lucky because it's the it was the grandmother of, of a professor of botany. So he told us, it was the last record.
0: Fantastic.
1: But probably still used in parts of Belarus, but it's not very common there. But like ground elder, would be more common in Belarus. It's it's commonly used there.
0: Well, I don't know what you think about this, but we we every year make quite a lot of fermented hogweed. I've taken to not using the leaf and just doing the stalks because I prefer the, the the result. And the thing with it is, it's it's pink. So we can strain off the juice and you've got something which is distinctly pink yeah. and distinctly sour. So the theory that I've developed around how we got from hogweed to beetroot and lemon juice is basically pink and sour. I don't know what you think about that. It's possible.
1: Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. But also like in Ukraine, zeleny borst is a green borst Is a name for any wild vegetable soup. Okay, so borscht basically is basically the name of a soup made with green vegetables. Well, in, um, in Romania we found that
0: they love to serve up these thin vegetable soups, which were always sour. And, and when we asked them where does the sourness come from, what are you putting in there? They were putting the, uh, the juice from their pickled cucumbers, but not vinegar pickles, they were, they were lacto-fermented. Cucumbers, yeah. So they're actually using the lacto fermented juice as as an ingredient in in soups as well. Romania
1: is, is like Poland. They don't use too many wild vegetables. Mm. You know, they they are like Poland. They are they are fascinated by the cultivated crops. Yeah, yeah. That's what I found.
0: Yeah, but they definitely do a lot of fermentation. That's that that was. That yeah,
1: was the... yeah. Uh, we also published a paper about fermented foods of Eastern Europe. We made mm. an inventory of all the fermented foods in the several countries of Europe with the list where which, which in which country was used and um, um, definitely cabbage is sticking out in, in, in Gherkin cucumbers but yeah. there are other traditions as well and, and you know people do ferment a lot of stuff and they do a lot in Russia and Belarus and Georgia mm. generally in Soviet Union it was very common to, to like to ferment like you know tomatoes and um, yeah any vegetables. But in Romania Romania they also like to ferment like cauliflowers for example we don't do it in Poland. There's no tradition of like, like the fermenting cauliflowers. But also it's changing now, so so well we
0: we know a lot of chefs they do a lot of fermentation and, and um, one guy absolutely swears by the little green leaf on the base of the cauliflower. He said if he could get enough of that it'd make a mountain of it every year. Just a little green leaf, he it
1: says it's, it's one of the nicest ferments he's done. Mm. So uh, there are some little tricks with fermentation. I found a village in Romania where they use um, aspirin mm. uh, as, um, as a c- uh, conservant for gherkins. You would put half a tablet of aspirin on top of the gherkins. This is after they fermented or? No, before, before. Stabilizer of fermentation. Wow.
0: Well, I suppose if you are going to get clever with that, you'd put some meadowsweet leaf in, right? Because that's got the the salicylic acid.
1: Maybe, but we are still learning, and uh, we are really learning, you know, newer and newer things that people do in other countries, like the eating of of buttercups, which is practiced in some parts of Europe, like in Croatia or Georgia, some buttercups are eaten. The flower or the leaf? The leaves. Right, there is. they are boiled a long time and then the water is discarded and in Georgia you can buy buttercups like vegetables well that's funny because I've uh,
0: always say on my wild food walks about the buttercup that the it's the protoneminence in there yeah. which are irritant poisons but they break down they break down and, and and the farmers don't think anything of having buttercups in the hay because they also break down yeah the, so I've, I've often said, in theory, you could eat these buttercups. In if practice, people
1: them. do, but people do it. Yes, it's amazing. Yes, and people used to do it in Poland, but they forgot. Actually, we okay. used the uh, creeping buttercups in in Poland, and um, okay, and the tradition died out. Hmm. And they used it in Belarus. The tradition died out, Fantastic. but it's still, they are still used in Georgia. But uh, unless the Saladines, they were used in Poland, even raw, eaten as salad, and. Um, well, you
0: see, with lesser celandine, we we used to sell that as a salad to restaurants, but we had over the years we we got quite a few different bits of feedback about people having like a itchy throat after they swallowed it, yeah, and even some people having hot flushes. So now we never sell it. as Because a salad.
1: there are uh, there are some minor uh, amounts of proton ammonium, which yeah. is uh, an irritant. Yeah. So I would advise boiling it and taking yeah. the water out but also uh, various populations of uh, buttercups and lesser celandines would contain higher amounts of proton and right and smaller and i tried eating buttercups uh, in england and scotland and i find british buttercups more bitter than eastern european okay. buttercups. i think it has to do with the fact that the spring is longer and they have a long, longer vegeta- ve- ve- vegetative season, so they they tend to have leaves in, in winter, and maybe they don't want. Then maybe they are more attractive to animals. Hmm. And in Poland, they tend to come up later when other other species also so the animals have leaves. Bacon, so, yeah. but it, this is just vague theory. But. um of course people usually eat them mixed with other things not like pure buttercup spinach you know, mm. but, but they do they do eat them well that's fascinating
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna try that well there's a couple of other plants i know you've worked with been nice asked to hear you talk about um there's the um marsh wound which is, I think, it's Stachys palustris, isn't it? In, yes. in Latin, that's, yes. That's a fascinating. This
1: guess. was eaten in my village until 1970s by a children's snack. Children would follow the, the plow and they would take out the rhizomes and eat them raw, straight from the earth. See, well, can can you describe what they look like and what they, they taste like? They look like worms. They are meaty. They are they are mild, meaty taste when you fry them like potatoes, with oil. They are delicious, mm. and uh, they were used. Practically, mainly in Poland. There was some trials in Sweden to advertise them as food, as famine food, but it didn't really work. And there were experiments in Britain with growing it and collecting it. Mm. But it was only Poland w- where was where it was used, and um, it was actually named after another vegetable, Cium Caesarium, which is a now forgotten root crop which mm. was grown in Poland, and the root crop died out, but because these underground parts are similar in those mm. species, people change changed the name to Stachys. Mm. And, um, but it was used mainly as salmon food, you know, like in early spring people would dig it out, or some people would collect it in autumn and dry it for winter. But there's a very
0: similar one that's used in Asia, isn't it? There's another Stachys
1: species. Yeah, Stachys uh, sieboldi or Stachys mm. affinis. It's, um, they look very similar. Stachy's seaboardy is just more hairy mm. and it's got cultivars which are thicker and when you grow it with manure, you know, in a, it's like with, uh, with what you call it, water arrow, arrow uh, Sagittaria. Um, arrowhead? Arrowhead, yeah. Arrowheads. You, they are delicious. They have little bulbs and mm. you can collect them in springs in Europe, in, in streams in Europe, but um, they will be the size of, an, of a nail. And if they are grown in a subtropical China, heavily manured, and weeded, they are the size of potatoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's a very popular vegetable. It, it yeah. Really, I heard that this was uh, the Chinese artichoke, it's called Chinese, Japanese right. artichoke. Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was actually becoming popular in Europe, especially in France it was very popular. But at some point some disease wiped it out. Some disease came and most of the plantations died. So sometimes we don't, you know, we might not know all the, all the underlining reasons why certain plants are not used in in certain Mm. areas. You need generations to confirm it, Mm. you know, to, to. But with with respect to the wild one
0: there, I mean, it's extraordinary to me that it's, it's not more popular uh, because. What you described there of people following the plow—that's that's the that's the Yeah, secret but, of that. but
1: it's declining. Yeah. As a child, I remember the whole bucketfuls of of, yeah. of it, mm. and rodents collected. Those would make like a ten kilo, you know, um, uh, stores for, of yeah. it for winter. Yeah. And I would find these stores—not not ten kilos, but like a kilogram of 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 rhizomes hidden in the, in the ground, and. Uh, I started doing my workshop 16 years ago, and each year there's less and less and less of marsh wound work, because uh, people use more and more herbicides, and they remove it. Whereas if you're just playing fair,
0: and and like the old ways, where you have to pull something out by hand, when someone's running a plow or (coughs) digging digging an area to get rid of them, you're breaking those little rhizomes into fragments, each of which produces a new plant. Now if you're a gardener that is seriously committed to getting rid of it, that's a problem. Yeah. But if you're an intelligent person that realizes you've got a food resource there. Yeah. But every time you dig your soil for your other cultivation activities, you're actually promoting the growth of a food plant. I mean, yeah, it's that's an
1: incredible benefit. People didn't make it this connection. For some reason people in Asia are much we're much more into combining crops together and yeah. using all possible Alternative crops, and that's why I do research in China, because uh, their knowledge is, if you if you treat it as if you measure it as a percentage of flora, which is used and known, the the people in East Asia, in parts of East Asia, not in the cities, but in, in the you know, in the countryside, I would say they have the largest percentage of, of actually plants used, and. Uh, and in China, people, people who know plants are respected. You know, in the mm. countryside, people mm. who are herbalists. There are a lot of herbalists. In every mountain range, there are herbalists knowing endemic uses of endemic plants. Yeah. And not necessarily minorities. This is funny that, the the Chinese at some they always go for the minorities. They would um, go to you know Yunnan, and then of course they have amazing traditions and amazing endemic species, but also in the mountains of central China or northern China where you have like mainly Han people, the, 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 the Mandarin speakers they have even better knowledge mm. Yeah, even better knowledge of many plants and in 1959, 1961 there was, a lot, there was big famine in China and millions of people died of hunger 60 million people died of hunger in China mm. and these people still are al- li- uh, alive those who survived and you go to the mountains and you have people telling you they survived in the woods eating Salomon seal rhizomes and they tell you the recipes how to make it and uh, you know they they tell you that the famine starts when you eat so much kinopodium leaves that when you eat it the shit comes out and it looks like the, the pulp you ate. It's green and falls apart. Yeah. That's famine, yeah? yeah. Uh, and these people survived it. They don't, they, they actually don't say, oh, my father told me, oh, my grandfather. No, they said, when I was eight, I was hiding in the woods, and I was having a fire and eating rhizomes, yeah? Mm. And um, uh, This, uh, this is amazing. This knowledge, and the, they go through for the forest, and they would they would go through for the forest, and they would tell you, this is edible, this is famine plant, this is eaten now, this is medicine, this is strong medicine, this is weak medicine. So everything has a use, mm. yeah. And a lot of the genera are the same, yeah. So uh, that's why uh, Georgia is fascinating for me, and the Caucasus, because uh, a lot of the plants which are here in Britain or Poland or are growing in gardens are there and um, comfrey they eat comfrey they they sell comfrey in the markets they make uh, dishes with comfrey okay that's a bit dodgy Uh, well they do (laughs) they eat a lot of it
0: well just just for anyone listening that wouldn't know why why i made that remark comfrey contains these things called paralyzed alkaloids and they basically tear through your liver and smash it up. So if you eat, as I understand it, if you eat a little bit of comfrey once in a while, you'll be all right. But if you yeah, regularly it up, rake,
1: yes, we have to be careful. Yes, but uh, I know a professor of um, of ethnobotany who Trans- comes from Transylvania, right. and once he said, what? Pyrolyzaden py- alkaloids in, alkaloid in Coats food? My mother made cold food, sarma, all her life. We always ate cold food, sarma. Nothing happened to us, Yeah. Yeah. So... But
0: there are are stories about people...
1: No, we have evidence. No, actually, there are very few stories from people. Actually, this is all propaganda, anti-herbal propaganda, really. But we have stories from animals. We do have, um, uh, you know, animals which have strong degeneration of liver or die after being fed comfrey a lot or after eating you know bracken and 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 that's another story bracken yeah yeah, yeah.
0: well there's a story of a guy that went on a comfrey diet and and just ate comfrey all the time for a while he died of sclerosis of the liver yeah you you definitely you definitely can harm yourself eating that but
1: there are a few cases i'm sure yeah you should avoid, you know, eating mono-foods, like even in the country, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, because one of the biggest messages I get from wild foods, having been thinking about it and doing it for ages, is that the opportunity you have is to eat a massive diversity of plants. So, you know, if, if you uh, if you know about wild foods and then only eat lots of one plant... And yeah, I'm definitely missing really the
1: point. You can get poisoned with eating a lot of plants, only one species, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's it's not natural. Yeah. Now I'm moving towards the tropics. Mm-hmm. I started some project in Laos, and um, I see how it goes. But um, yes, I want to look at different parts of Asia now.
0: So the main thing you do when you get out there is, is basically just talk to local people, right? And, yes. And, 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 and
1: and eat with them, and yeah. eat local dishes, and yeah. go through the forest, and they dig out plants for me, days after days after days. That's why I run, uh, don't run many courses, because, uh, you know, it it is really rewarding to tell people the knowledge, but it's, it's equally rewarding to actually, know first, firsthand, you yeah. know, go to some village and, you know, this the a lot of traditions are forgotten in. Um, Everywhere in the world. So even hmm. in these countries that are amazing for us now, if you really look what young people eat and how yeah. they behave, you are seriously worried. And um, the, the yes, that the donors is going to die out. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I had I, I had this project in Dalmatia, in uh, the Dalmatian islands in in Croatia and in Kvarner islands. Uh, this is an area which is very beautiful, very biodiverse with. Um, uh, a lot of tourism mm. and there are still young old people who have some knowledge But they are dying out mm. and the knowledge is really dying out and I wanted to preserve it And I wrote this project the ethnobotany of, of Croatian islands Fantastic! and with a, a few colleagues from Croatia We managed to interview people in 30 islands huh. About 400 interviews with knowledgeable informants and you know in some islands it's like one person it's one person less. Even in large islands, there are some large islands which are so, you know, the knowledge is so modernized that you have la- one lady with goats, and this one lady knows everything. But it's only one lady. Here's the thing: like
0: we know that in um, the sort of modern context, right? People live in a, a modern Western lifestyle. There's a lot of interest now in traditional knowledge and in the healing power of plants, in in, in in finding out what really a healthy diet is, and so on. And it seems to me that there's there's like an aching and a longing that people have to be in the position that that little old lady is in Croatia. My question is, how can we make that awareness that we're beginning to have here, and when I say here, I mean in the modern context, not necessarily this location. How can we make that send a message to the um, the kids in those communities to see that what they've got is is so valuable? It, it is, seems to me we must be able to make a it connection. It is
1: sending the me- message. There are more and more people aware of it, and Polish government has a program. Uh, the Ministry of Culture has a program that um, if you find a master of knowledge in some village. Uh, They can get money as an instructor and they can get one Apprentice who is also paid and uh, for for a few months. They have to document the work Mm. but they get a salary both people the master and the apprentice and uh, I know people the basket makers who teach their grandchildren and they're paid by the government Mm. to to pass the knowledge.
0: It's got to happen because I've been I've been to like
1: ethnographic
0: Uh, I think it was a a museum in um, in, uh, Adelaide in Australia and they show the picture of the lady that made the last basket or the last woven bag according to a certain technique and this woman's now died and nobody knows how to do that now. And, and you just know that so many things like that, it's like a little light has been snuffed out. We, the idea we, that someone could catch that before... We
1: are recreating the knowledge. I mean, some things are... Recre- some things are possible to be recreated, mm-hmm. some not. Some... Mm-hmm. But I believe that what's happening now, there is like a new tradition growing. Yeah, It's different because the habitat is different. There are no, not so many pastures and people have a different li- uh, lifestyle. Um, And So maybe the plants you collect will be different, but still there is exchange of knowledge, discussions, observations. Oh, I feel bad after this. And that's how you mentioned that your customers didn't feel good after eating celadine. So you you removed it from the menu. So these are little observations and this body of knowledge is kind of growing. Yeah,
0: well, I think it's definitely happening with, 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 with stuff like you're doing. As you said, it's the same plants a lot of the time in China or wherever else. That we have here at least some of the same plants the idea that we've got this way of sharing knowledge which our ancestors certainly wouldn't have had unless they met somebody that, that, that traveled a very long way but nowadays we can just log on to the internet and and access information that's been yeah that's been gleaned and it means it feeds into the redevelopment of culture in a very rapid fashion you know yes, the way it that knowledge,
1: does. yeah it does it's a, as I say, it's a complicated process and um, not everything is bad, you yeah. know. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. I think, I don't know. I just feel we're, we're, we're a bit of, um, on this podcast. I do, do kind of get onto this. Oh, it's terrible. that This is happening thing. And then we quickly kind of jump over here and say, yes, but it's great that we can do this. And, but I think you've got to have both because they I mean, like I know a guy in, in Northern territory of Australia. Who is just doing nothing else but documenting the knowledge of the old people, because he says like he remembers talking to an old guy and, and saying, getting the information about this thing and that thing, and, and they said, well, what about this plant here? And he said, no. Nah. What do you mean, no? He said, oh, the old people took that. He said, what do you mean, the old people? Did? He said, the old people knew they died, and we don't know. So, yeah. But he yeah. says my job is trying to get that knowledge before the old people take it because a lot of these communities he's going to they don't have it's like the one you mentioned in Croatia so he's he's like I am too busy you you try and get him to do anything else devote his time to anything else he says no because I have to go and catch this knowledge before the old people go yeah Yeah. yeah. but at the same time to me it, it is this thing of igniting the flame in 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 the modern context somehow or another means that we can make that connection like they're doing in Poland as you just described yeah. that we can um, we can somehow inject that life back into a situation where, where, where the knowledge is like a... In
1: Poland we have a, a real you know craze for wild foods like here and uh, people are very interested and people experiment and people serve it in you know, like rural settings in some you know agritourist farms and hostels hotels and uh, mm. There is fairs and shops and um, there's m- more and more offered and it's, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: it's cool. And I much it
1: continued.
0: Yeah, no, it's really good. Do you think do you think it has implications with um, with the uh, change in land use and, and things? Because I, I think that's a very interesting possible ramification. it's a story for
1: another podcast. Uh, the land use changed a lot, and you know, we also because we don't use the land, most people don't use the land themselves, they don't have this connection from childhood that they know things from childhood and they know where they grow, they know how to use them. But uh, in Poland, we had a dramatic decline in pastures, most mountain pastures don't exist, you know, they overgrew by forest, got overgrown by forest or decay became uh, hay meadows. Uh, we have herbicides in the fields, so mm-hmm. field poppies are gone, uh, cornflowers are gone, uh, two chamomiles are gone. You all know, just found, you know, from time to time, every ten kilometers. Um, and the hay meadows are less and less diverse. So very similar pictures in Britain. You yeah. Know. And all, there are a lot of protective, you know, measures taken. But uh, the landscape changed. The landscape mm-hmm. is more woody, more uh, rich in nutrients because people don't like. In the past, they would try to get out every possible calorie from the landscape. You know, overgrazed it, it and now it's all kind of overgrown and abandoned. You know? mm. I just wanted to say that I think foragers have a big potential as a uh, Documenters of knowledge. Mm. I really, I did some interviews, uh, I want to write something about foragers in Britain and most of them, uh, they say that they do read books, they they have, you know, they were inspired by other people and they experiment themselves but actually they met very few people who have knowledge here mm. and they haven't done this documentation and um, Actually, a couple of people, uh, a couple of foragers, said, "I wish I could also uh, document this traditional knowledge, but I don't have time, slash money, slash space." Yeah. And I wish them they could find space because they often know the species. They could communicate with local people, and uh, you know, and not do it for money, not do it for even for science, but do it for themselves and for for the humanity. Mm. You know, go to some area where they know the flora and, you know, record, yeah. And recording this knowledge is like recording a, um, a, a crime scene, you know, you just have to describe when, what, who, how, and that's enough. Even if you make a diary, hmm. if it, but you, you, you do make a diary. Please just write that this and this guy told me this and he was born in 1930, and his father told him, mm. and put a specimen. And after, because after 10 years you forget, As someone will ask you and you say, oh, someone told me, oh, I forgot his name, and then you are not sure, and then the guy is dead, so and it down yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. It has value even when you publish it in a newspaper, it doesn't have to be a scientific paper, because it stays, yeah. It can be used for some kind of meta-analysis by by local, you know, groups who wants to reinvent the traditions. Well,
0: it's means. funny you mentioned newspapers because that's that's when I did a little bit of research okay. on the um, the bistort in the north of England. That's how I got people to talk to me about it is is, um, is I put an advert in a local newspaper.
1: That's a very strange um, uh, way. And the only other person I know is Professor Rostafiński in the 19th century. <laughs> Did the survey in Poland? You did two only cases, <laughs> but uh, the best way is to go, yeah. go there, go to talk to the people. Snowball technique, yeah. You go to one person, then they, they send tell you to you about another, the other. and then you meet some other guy in the fields, and then. Yeah. But well, you you're right.
0: I could. I was. I was perhaps too lazy to go. This was uh, Yorkshire and the Lake um, District, and was researching. Takes time.
1: Takes money. Takes. Yeah, takes yeah but energy. we could go
0: we could go and do this with the sea kale there's there's definitely a tradition of sea kale use down at Dungeness near us yeah um and i think there might just still be some people alive that that used to do this old um thing where they they put tin pots over the sea cow to make it blanch um so um yeah i guess there are pockets of knowledge i guess we guess we we, we just worry that that there's so few people with those traditions in England, but perhaps it's worth it. Perhaps we should just get out there and
1: find out, Don't knock on some yeah, doors. Like the, the yeah, thing. I think there are. They are just uh, dispersed. Yeah, you mm. have to maybe take a, a region. Um, but I think it's worth it.
0: Well, we go we go digging for knowledge. I mean, that's the thing. I'm I'm inspired by what you said about the. Um, the, uh, the research into the archives as well because you, you may well be right there may well be stuff in the archives that no one's dug up that tells us about you know, historical yeah. uses here I'm, I'm sure the stuff and another guy recommended to me um, years ago that we should look at the records of the markets he thought that we would probably get some very interesting stuff about
1: wild plant and mushrooms yeah, yeah, yeah. from the uh, from the records of the markets which go back hundreds of years. And England is the best documented country yeah in Europe, so I'm sure if you well, have, we should. don't do the book you have other yeah. stuff as well. You yeah, know. So we didn't talk about the sweet managrass.
0: Okay, well let's talk about that then. Yeah, so there's a there's a plant that that, that we have uh, in England um called um well we call it floating sweet grass but it's also called managrass.
1: grass. Yeah, and you you have an amazing tradition of that and we in had the tradition. Okay. Yeah. No, I wanted to mention it because we often talk about fruits and rhizomes and leaves, but we don't talk about cereals. Actually, Mm. there are some species of wild cereals Mm. in Europe. And uh, there was also some cereals harvested in Iceland. Um, Elemus, I think. And um, uh, in Poland, it was quite common to harvest uh, this glyceria grass, Mm. which is a plant growing in wet meadows. And it was harvested all over Poland but between the day of Saint John and Saint Peter and Paul <laughs> at dusk. Um and people so what made dusk? dusk because um the grains are wet and they wouldn't easily separate they, they, they are very easy to separate from the husk. So easy that they fall off the the sieves and they will be collected on big kind of sieves. And When they were wet, they would stay and then they would dry when you bring them home. Okay, and um, This tradition died out completely in the 1940s like around the Second World War the last places where it was practiced was Western Belarus the border of Poland and Belarus and This is a, a, a very slow harvested grass wild grass. You can make bread from it uh, you can make uh, some kind of gruel but it was slow to collect, and it was mainly collected for big landowners, who collected tributes. So once the whole feudal system collapsed, the collecting of managras collapsed, because peasants were obliged to collect man. They wouldn't collect it for themselves, because it was too, too expensive, and they would have to, they would have to collect it for, for the landowners. But there was a trade in it, was there not? There was also a trade there going there were, to in like, markets, in yeah, many yeah, markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We don't have a single photo of a market with, with this, and um, there was a trade of it. And um, there was a trade of other interesting plants in Eastern Europe, like the water crop, trapa which is a very valuable protein-rich nut growing <laughs> in water. And I've seen photos of from Hungary from 1970s of village women selling it in the market. In Poland, it lasted until 1950. There were some places where it was still sold in 1950s mm. as a delicacy.
0: I mean, the 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 the, the, uh, the manor grass there—it must have been—it must have been delicious, right? Uh, to have this status of almost like a luxury food with the yeah, with the rich houses and so on. And mm.
1: Sometimes boiled as dessert with milk or cinnamon and you know mm. wine. So food. So wild food was also the food for the rich, mm. you know, not always for the poor.
0: I've heard. I've read read accounts of people harvesting it with a felt hat, which is kind of sweet. So we, I, I once harvested you a small it. amount. You it. Yeah,
1: yeah. That they harvested it for with, what? With a felt hat for what? A hat. Well, just for food.
0: But, but that's, that was the method they
1: used. That Where hat. did you find this record? I'll have to dig around and find my recipe. Oh, this is really interesting. Yeah,
0: um, I think it's in an English wild food book. That, that, um, anyway, I'll check. i will gonna have yes. a dig around. Um, so I yeah. tried harvesting it with a
1: hat. It does work. Yeah, yeah. We also had these um, uh, records of collecting barnyard grass, echinocloa crusgalli. Okay. Like. Um, and we had some um, some kind of millet called polish millet uh, digitaria sanguinaris which yeah, is yeah, a, yeah. a finger, small finger grass, grass yeah small grass uh, growing in lawns completely forgotten it was harvested it was mm. sown and harvested mm. and i think now it's still it's still done in africa somewhere in africa well
0: they had about 60 different species in africa that were harvested on quite a large scale up until almost as late as the 60s in some cases but unfortunately they're a victim of of smart people from America coming along with new varieties of wheat and so on Um, but but some of these were extraordinary species because they did things like um, there were ones where the roots bound the banks of the rivers together and, and and when they weren't harvesting the grain the cattle would go down there and feed without it all falling apart and yeah so they they had roles as flood defenses and then other ones were were, were uh, drought resistant so they're still producing a crop even when there was no yes. rain and I think for me I get quite excited thinking about these sorts of things because they, they they point back to former land use and point forward to possible land use now you know that people could be Uh, getting quite a lot of food from um, extensive areas of land but it's just because they were in some cases the reason this fell apart is like the nomadic goat herders in one area yeah they would keep because of their rules of common they would keep the goats off at the time when when they were in seed or just about to seed and then they were grazed after the seeds have been harvested but like the um the decline of their their culture there meant that they're no longer able to manage it. So it all just got down, no seed, and so other grasses took over. Mm. Um, but that's why I find this this uh, floating sweetgrass thing so interesting, because it's an example of, of one thing that we've had in Europe. Um, okay, we're about to get invaded by loads of people, so um, I think we'll wind this up now. It's we been,
1: couldn't finish, we could just go on. <laughs> we could
0: talk forever about plants. And, okay, uh, thank you for the conversation, too. Been good to have you. Thanks again for joining us for this week's World Wild podcast. And as ever, you can find links to things that we've referred to in the course of the podcast, um, and in particular, links to Wukash's webpage. And you'll find there um, a lot of the papers that he's done. There's some really interesting material. I encourage you to engage with that, and also to consider. Doing the kind of thing that he's asked, uh, and sort of uh, appealed to people to do, um, which is to you know talk to the older folk wherever it is you live, and, and see if there isn't some hidden pockets of wild food knowledge there, waiting to be discovered and documented. As ever, we would ask you to rate and review us um, if you're enjoying this material, because it'll give other people. A better chance of finding us through whatever medium you're using, whether it be iTunes or Spotify or whatever. So that's it for this week's Worldwide Podcast.